Hey everyone, first off, we at the Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are recording this podcast. Pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past and present. Let's go. Hello and welcome to the Familiar Strange. Brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University College of Asian Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association, coming to you from our bedrooms. I'm your familiar stranger today, Joe, along with my fellow familiar strangers, Alex. Hello. And Tim. Hello. And joining us for the first time is PhD student in the School of Archaeology and Anthropology, Regional President of Amnesty International in New South Wales and the ACT, Kathy. Hello. Kathy. What have you been thinking about this week? This week I've been thinking a lot about the tensions between activism and anthropology. I am starting to try and get back into my PhD after a little time away due to COVID and various different things affecting fieldwork. And in the interim, I've been filling up a lot of my time with activism. And I'm just finding that there's there's quite a lot of tensions in, in the context of of how we approach anthropology. And to me, the reason why I decided on studying anthropology was because of my background in activism. And I really felt like it was a space where you could try and highlight some voices of, of minority groups and marginalised communities that don't traditionally get heard and use use the thesis and use the PhD to almost advocate for some sort of some sort of topic. So within my context, I wanted to advocate for stateless people and really critique Australia's border policies through anthropology. But to me, that's a real activism anthropology endeavour. But I'm finding as I dive more and more into anthropology, is is that the right thing to be doing? Is that actually should I be advocating for people when people can advocate for themselves um, and should it be more of an exploration of what does activism even mean um, and what does it mean to certain communities and if they would want a white western perspective on activism and if they want my version of what I think Australian policy is um, and rather kind of un unraveling that and dissecting what it means to be an activist and to be stateless and to have to live within these these policies. Anyone have any thoughts on that? <laughs> I really like this topic for a couple of reasons, partly because I came into anthropology myself, not so much from an activist stance as a development studies side, which is still interventionist. Yeah. Um, and it also, it really cuts to what a number of academics have said over the decades now. I particularly think of Nancy Sherpa Hughes, but it also cuts to the heart of what is the purpose of anthropology and what are our kind of claims to knowledge? Because, you know, like you, I came into anthropology kind of sideways, hoping to, you know, make a difference in the world. And yet you sort of realise that I really go in on the side of a group, then why should anyone else believe me if I say a thing? It's a question I at least don't have much of an answer to. What do you guys think? I think it's the dilemma that all of us coming from incredibly privileged, developed world context, I think, right to acknowledge that there's, you know, people like Cliff Marcus and Abu Lagod have all, you know, made the point that in any representation of another person, there's an inherent power dynamic at play there. How you navigate that and 
how you find ways of um, either lending your voice to certain causes or speak out against is, I think, possibly the sort of ultimate question for politically minded and well, not even just politically minded, just generally apologists, because we are engaged in acts of representation and representing people in places that are other to ourselves. And we're also often driven by this desire to make some sort of meaningful change because we, we do get this education that sort of helps with all of this knowledge about why things perhaps shouldn't be the way they are. Of course, you then feel some, in some way compelled to go out and try and impact upon that. How you then do that in a way that is thoughtful towards the people you're engaging with as an anthropologist, I think probably changes from place to place and time from time. Kind of like the classic social studies weasel answer, because you seem to say, well, it's all context dependent. <laughs> well, I mean, I think maybe we'll talk about this in the discussion as we go along. But I mean, what, what that makes me think of, um, Joe, is this, this paradox of like humanitarian action, right? In that humanitarian action or, you know, a humanitarian intervention, you know, really, I guess you have to see that it occurs in a context in which there are these other um, forces at play, whether they be political or economic or ideological factors or forces which are at play and can also influence negatively the, the ideals of you know, humanitarianism, which, which may actually cause more harm to those it seeks to assist. This is the thing, right? Like anthropology has kind of been an activist discipline, if not since the very, very beginning, since the early days. I mean, Boaz went in with an agenda. Mead and Evans Pritchard quite similarly, yeah? That, so that comes back to those sorts of questions of, are you just reporting other people's voices or are you producing your own knowledge? Yeah, like we're trying to, we're almost trying to push the boundaries of our own knowledge and our own assumptions, right? That mm. seems to be the whole purpose of anthropology. It's like dealing and digging in to something that that on the surface level we want to explore more about. I mean, we can even think about gender and, and how on a surface level at the time, things might have seen quite simple to, to people in the UK. And then you can just dive in a lot deeper. And, you know, I think it's all about questioning, just questioning everything we know and trying to find some sort of answer. And I think it's really interesting how you were saying people like Du Bois uh, would be an activist anthropologist really um when in my mind i like to think of activism as a really progressive and reasonably lefty sort of space to be but recently i mean in the media we've had anti-vax activists being used and i feel like that's almost co-opting the language of progressives but it probably isn't if they are activists within their own right it's just something that i feel deeply uncomfortable with um, because I like to, we like to think that we're going to go in with this whole do no harm principle, when in reality, I think it's more of you do the best you can with what you know at the time and keep digging within yourself and keep questioning and finding your own positionality, addressing the privileges and the power dynamics within both yourself, but also communities that we're working in as well, right? And I just feel like it. we should be kind of creating spaces and understanding of people that are resisting and are protesting and just interrogating kind of like our own responsibilities as people who are have this incredible privilege to study a subject or area for such a long time. I'm so interested, um, and you don't have to answer this, Kathy. What Tim was saying earlier about um, sort of the humanitarian logic that's often at play with um, 
certain types of intervention. So there's sort of the dominant the dominant narratives around state interventions or NGO-based interventions. Probably about the last 30 plus years has been around acting on this humanitarian impulse, this idea that we have a duty to one another on the basis of shared humanity, mm-hmm. which is obviously something Amnesty holds. I assume it's basically its founding principle is essentially that we're all deserving of the Bateman rights. One of these things that we have to constantly navigate in this position as perhaps anthropologists and activists, how you manage to maintain the sort of particularism of the invested in working with and maintain that commitment to a wider liberal conception of um, humanitarianism, especially when you're often dealing with people who don't share that same commitment to a, to a universal humanitarianism. Yeah, you're right. I think it's a dilemma that we face constantly and it's something that we will never get right and I don't think that we are doing it right at all at the moment. I think that's something that Amnesty, even when we look at the movements around Black Lives Matter and anti-racism and really trying to interrogate our own practices, it's something that we've talked about a lot within our movement uh, and something that, that I've pushed for as well. And I think it comes down to maybe to use a buzzword of today, I had this really interesting conversation with some people who were who were critical race theorists and they were talking about the act of decolonizing human rights and what that would even mean in context and if that's something that's even possible because we definitely understand that this entire declaration of human rights, which I have on my wall behind me that I'm so invested in, was actually created after World War II by a bunch of old white men who were incredibly rich and had a particular lens that they saw on the world. Um, obviously, Eleanor Roosevelt was also really strongly behind it, so we did have the <laughs> women there. But I think we really, if we believe in advancing the rights of humanity and we believe in any sort of fundamental human rights that crosses boundaries and borders then we need to consistently critique it as well and consistently kind of figure out where we're coming from. And you're right, like going into community, if I even think about talking to some of our activists in Africa, and it feels it feels like there's this constant dilemma because I'm from the UK and because I'm from London, everyone's like, oh, you're representing Amnesty International, like our peak head office. Um, therefore, we need to listen to everything you say. And oftentimes when I'm like, I say that's that's not what I'm here for. And I step back and, and say, I would like to listen. People get really nervous. And so it's really important that I kind of understand any potential way of, of breaking down those those barriers, if that makes any sense. But yeah, I don't think that that's probably not a very good way to answer your question. But I just don't think that there is a right answer. And I'm constantly terrified that I'm doing harm and it's not actually the right thing to be doing. I'm not really familiar with Amnesty's, you know, kind of guiding principles. I, I guess I'm more familiar with like ICRC. So the International Committee for the Red Cross, Red Crescent, you know, just in terms of those humanitarian principles, you know, broadly speaking, there's, I think, seven, there's four that are kind of these guiding humanitarian principles that at least the ICRC you know, holds to be kind of core tenets of, you know, their organization, but, you know, their, their broadly humanity, neutrality, impartiality, and independence. And, you know, I think it, we've, we've come a long way since 1859 and, you know, the Battle of Solferino and those kind of more Dunton-esque, you know, principles. And, you know, just picking up on what you said before, Catherine, we're talking about, you know, issues where, you know, perhaps there's not that representation you know, in these more contemporary debates that we're that we're having now for these, you know, more contemporary times. And 
I wonder if, you know, maybe we should really be thinking about alternative principles, you know, in addition to those foundational principles, you know, maybe we should be thinking about these, you know, alternative principles that might be, you know, more, you know, useful in terms of these debates that we're having now. And so in addition, you know, maybe we can think about, you know, diversity or you know, compassion, perhaps, or, you know, something that's more in line with, um, you know, this conversation, at least, and, and that kind of activist angle that we're looking at here, principles, for example, like solidarity and, and equity. So, yeah, I don't know if you have any, any thoughts on perhaps alternative principles, which would, you know, help us grapple with these big ideas. Yeah, something like solidarity would be a key foundational principle and yeah, platforming voices and the the messy concept of agency potentially to be dived into a little bit as well. And I suppose the sort of unanswered question that we're all sort of grappling in the shadows of is that ongoing relationship between community and individual and sort of state and individual as well. And I suppose one of the places that we've seen that really play out in recent weeks is our, the topic of our second um, point of discussion, which is COP26. So obviously this has been has been the major summit over the last two weeks. So we've seen leaders from all over the world come together and to put forward a plan for climate change and how to sort of address that. We've seen some sort of interesting moments, some US, especially around US-China collaboration. And we've also seen, I suppose, a number of activists express a lot of disappointment with how slow, how meager some of these reforms are going to be. So of course, one of the other things that was prominent at COP26 is the foreign minister of Tuvalu, Simon Cote, who gave his speech to the summit knee-deep in seawater to show how Tuvalu was on the front line of the climate crisis. I'm sure all of you saw this. What did you guys make of that image? Yeah, I mean, I think the image was really powerful. It got a lot of headlines, and rightly so, and brought a lot of attention to, you know, the issue of Pacific representation or underrepresentation at COP26. So yeah, I I mean, what did you guys think? I don't know if you guys remember, the, the cabinet of the Maldives a while ago had a cabinet meeting underwater with all scuba gear. A similar style of political activism. And yet the image behind it, I just don't find it quite as striking. Even though in some ways they arguably went to a greater length, like photograph it underwater. And yet something about the, you know, suit from the top, shorts down the bottom, podium against the beach in knee almost waist high water really hits home, right? And again, that becomes a question about how we know things, because at least from my perspective, because we've had facts and figures shoved down our throats since forever, right? Like, I mean, you have friggin' Waterworld as a movie that was premised on climate change. So this is not new. And yet it's such a different way to try and know the crisis. And I think that's interesting. And what is it about the image that makes it powerful versus other images? There's an excellent book by Didier Fussin called Humanitarian Reason and Moral History, where he essentially says that one of the key elements of politics today and the assigning of value to different types of life or what he calls the politics of it, on your ability to present yourself as a certain type of humanitarian victim, and it's your ability to present yourself in that way. I think this very smart, clever manipulation of media and images by the Tuvalu foreign minister shows that, sadly, knowledge in itself of these things isn't enough. There needs to sort of almost be a marketing strategy to get the majority of the world to pay attention. And that's, if I'm being honest, sort of fills me with a, with a real sense of, you know, foreboding and dread that those whose lives are given most value is either sociologically determined through those groups that have historically been more privileged or those who are best able to access and present a coherent narrative of themselves as a 
deserving victims or deserving of humanitarian intervention in some way. Yeah, looking at the deserving victim and undeserving victim, because that comes across a lot in some of the things that I've been looking at when it comes to refugees as well, and kind of looking at what would be the perfect or the ideal refugee and having to fit into this sort of mould in order to be almost granted the right to be safe and the right to citizenship. How big a sin do you have to commit to not be a legitimate refugee from a very cynical perspective, right? Like... Yeah, I was just thinking about even looking at Australian policy and Australian campaigning around climate change and refugees and it has to almost display the perfect Indigenous person and the perfect person who is a refugee who's fleeing because they've put their hand up and gone against some sort of archaic government move. Ante Mitchbach uses this word of refugees have to be either grateful or ungrateful and therefore they're deserving of our care and our protection. And I think that that can similarly be transferred over to a lot of, I'm just going to use some of the activist connotations, um, but the campaigns around Indigenous rights when it comes to climate change and communities and protecting the people who are seen to be grateful for other people campaigning with them or on their behalf, which I think really ties nicely back to the conversation we started with in you know, looking at solidarity rather than this individual right. And I think something for me that was really striking about that picture that really brought home some of the readings I've been doing around protest is the real politicising of the body and when when you feel like there's people aren't paying attention, there's this movement and resistance that you would you go to an extent of putting your body on the line and making that image really powerful in order to to garner some sort of attention. Um, and I I really liked what this minister did and made it really really present because he had his suit on top, so it really was like I am a presenting to cop. And I, we are currently drowning as a nation and you do need to pay attention and really forming almost, like really making a performance out of his speech, I thought was incredibly powerful and something really worthwhile. In buying into this image of having to portray victims as the perfection of victims, because otherwise they're not deserving, it, it creates that whole structure around an idea of perfection and anything less than that renders you if not worthless at least not worth enough i think the other dimension here alex is not just that you have to have this sort of moral purity to be considered worthy of saving but also you have to have experienced a certain degree of suffering i agree but i wonder whether it's just degree or type if somebody who was dirt poor, starving on the streets of Delhi or something, somehow was transported as a refugee to Australia. And I'm saying like on the verge of starvation, just as at risk of death as somebody fleeing a war-torn country, if not more so, I still think a lot of people would have trouble thinking of them, thinking of them as a refugee, even though their risk of harm and death is equal. I think it's not just degree, it's type. It's like some dangers are legitimate to flee from and some aren't. And I'm not sure what makes one one and the other the other. Yeah, I think it's more to do with 
with policies and politics rather than the people at play and the people in power and what they're saying rather than necessarily individual Australians or Europeans and what they necessarily would think and would see as deserving. And I think that there's a really strong tension there. And I think there's also a really strong tension when it comes to emotion. I mean, if somebody was in front of you, I think the most people I would like to say would do something. But when you can distance yourself from an issue, it suddenly isn't so urgent and you're not so emotionally triggered, which is probably why things like the the photo of the minister in Tuvalu is so strong, because it really triggers and plays into those emotions and really, really makes you feel and think a little bit differently about the wider policy. So I think for, for anyone that's kind of worked in, you know, the NGO or not-for-profit sector, particularly, you know, working with refugees or asylum seekers or, you know, internally displaced people. For the vast majority of people who haven't come face-to-face with those people, there is this kind of cognitive dissonance in terms of, you know, not really understanding or appreciating the complexity of what it is, you know, these people are fleeing from. And so I think there is, to some extent, this kind of inability to you know, really extend that empathy. And perhaps that's what the image of the Tuvalan foreign minister, you know, that's probably why that was so powerful, I think, because, you know, we could really see him as, you know, an individual and somebody that we could perhaps, um, you know, empathise with, you know, as an individual in that situation. It was a great change for anthropologists and anyone involved in any sort of prism or political case now is to find ways of extending that empathy and to do it quickly. We can actually seriously challenge the sort of issues that are raised by all of the other things we've spoken about. We're going to have to leave it there for this week. So I'd like to thank my fellow familiar strangers, Alex. Thank you. Tim. Thank you. And Kathy. Thank you. And I've been your host this week, Joe. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange. Our executive producer is the wonderful Matthew Fung. Subscribe to The Familiar Strange podcast us on iTunes and all the other familiar places. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash familiar strange. Not the strange familiars. It's another fun podcast, just not ours. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at familiarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of the show, email us at sessions at familiarstrange.com at TFS tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Debro. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Mordoro. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep talking strange.